Uh, our four beautiful little girls are part of the gang that runs amok around here every, <laughs> every Sunday. And uh, we have our, another little one coming in April. So we're very thankful for that. But I first started coming here to Calvary uh, back in 2008. I was a teenager back then. I was in the, uh, in the youth group. Pat Campbell was not the youth group leader back then, which was a long time ago, because he's been the youth group leader for a long time. Um, he eventually was my youth group leader as a kid, and uh, then life moved me on. Um, eventually got married in 2014, and my wife and I have lived all over the states, but we always find ourselves back in hot springs, so we think we're here for good this time. God can do whatever he wants, though. Um, but when I first started coming here, uh, it was soon after this addition was finished, um, that used to be the old auditorium out there where the Awana Circle is. Uh, and I think something happened when they were building this addition. I think the windows were on the second page of the uh, Excel spreadsheet. They got done building, they turned the page, and I'm like, oh no, there's windows on here. If you notice, there's no windows in this addition, which is fine. It's great. We have... We have artificial light, which is very nice. Um, that's not a window, okay? That's a door, and it has a window in it, okay? But all the windows downstairs are in that half of the building, other than the door down here, which has a window in it, and the door over there. Um, but that's all right. We have artificial light, uh, which makes us very comfortable in here. We can see well. Um, imagine being a deer right now, though, waking up this morning. It's 30 degrees out, 12 mile an hour wind, and uh, it's overcast. Just like waiting for that sun to come up, right? Got your half inch of hair covering your body and that's it. And uh, the sun peaks over the hills finally when the clouds break and, and that sun hits you and you appreciate that. That's like, that's like our version of the morning coffee. That's like the deer when, when the sun hits them. <laughs> they can't appreciate artificial light really because they can't produce it, um, but we can. As long as we pay the power bill on time. The lights stay on, and, and we, have, we have light, regardless of the fact that we don't have natural light in here. And that's all right. That's all right. We're thankful for our natural light. But if we didn't have it, we'd appreciate the sun a lot more, wouldn't we? The true light. The same situation goes on in our world. Uh, I didn't know if you know this, but right now, currently in our world, it's pretty dark. Right now in our world, there's 50 million people under slavery. Right now. That's more people that have ever been in slavery in the history of the world. So when Wilbur, William Wilberforce started working to abolish slavery over in England, there was less slaves before he started working on that than there are now. 50 million people, that's one in every 150. So there's about 150 people in here. One in every 150 is a slave in the world right now. Now the top six countries that have slaves, topping the list is India, China, Russia, Indonesia, Turkey, and number six is good old US of A. 1.1 million people under some form of slavery here in the US right now. That's a dark reality, you know? That's a dark reality about our world. And as we approach the Christmas season, and the light, the light that we, we talked about um, just a few minutes ago during our service. That light is difficult to appreciate sometimes because those dark realities about our world we're able to, to mute out. 
with artificial light. The artificial light of, of our lives. How much peace and freedom we have. How easy it is to find something to enjoy. You can rent movies from, from the library for free, basically. And amuse yourself that way. To amuse yourself. It's ah is a negifier, right? So it's something that's asymmetrical means it's not symmetrical. So to amuse yourself, to muse is to think. So to be amused is to not think. That's what the word means. And we do that. We amuse ourselves. And we're able to produce this quote-unquote artificial light. And it's not a bad thing, right? Like a steak dinner is not a bad thing. We're able to enjoy that, though. In our current situation, we're able to enjoy a steak dinner more often than once in a lifetime, which for a lot of the world... A one-pound steak would be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. We have other things going on in our world. We have a war in Ukraine that's been going on for, for quite a while, and there seems to be no point. I mean, you can't really put your finger on why, are, why, why is all that bloodshed, why all that destruction, why all the rockets into civilian areas. Like, it's just this ceaseless, senseless war going on. And then uh, about a month and a half ago, Israel lit up with, with the war. And 1,700 people were killed in one day in Israel. 1,700 people in one day, and that was not through carpet bombing. That was hand-to-hand. This is a dark reality in our world. And in, to face the dark reality, you need true light. That's what the true light is about. It's about being able to face those dark realities with something that actually gives you hope. Distracting yourself with the internet is so easy, but it doesn't actually give you anything to get you through life. So we're continually able to drown out the darkness with something inferior. As we're going to see, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 today. We're going to see that uh, the true light is coming. We do have a true light to shine in this dark world. But it's difficult to appreciate sometimes. Because in our current situation, we have peace and freedom. You realize for most of the world, peace and freedom is not an option. You can live in somewhere like China, where there's peace. They aren't being attacked. They aren't fighting war on their mainland of China right now. But they have no freedom. Or you could choose somewhere like Kurdistan or Israel where they're constantly fighting. There's no peace, but at least they have freedom. At least they, they have some autonomy for themselves. Most of the world has either peace or freedom. But we have both. And that's a huge blessing. That's a huge blessing. But when we come to talk about Christ, when we come to talk about his plans for the future, for this world, it makes it difficult to appreciate that because of how much artificial light we have here. Not that I'm... Not that I'm unthankful for the Constitution. Not that I'm unthankful for, for the writers of the Constitution who had the guts and the wisdom to craft something that would enable us to have this incredible country where we can have peace and freedom at the same time. I am th- very thankful for that. All I'm doing is trying to highlight that. As we read Isaiah 9, realize that your life In your life, it's very easy for you to restrict down the true light to this little square over there. 
because you have so much artificial light that's so easy to produce that you don't need the true light in your life in order to get by. That's not reality, but that's what it feels like. <clears throat> so let's pray, and we'll get into Isaiah chapter 9. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come before you, to look at your word together. Please give us the heart to see what you have in this passage. Please give us the mind to understand what you think about this, God. I pray that it would result in worship, God. Worship for who you truly are. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. In Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah's prophesying. He's about halfway, not, not halfway, but he's between David, King David, and the Babylonian captivity. It gives you a little bit of an idea on the timeline of where Isaiah falls. He's more closer to the Babylonian captivity. Israel is sinning all over the place. <clears throat> he's in Jerusalem most of the time. He's prophesying to Israel, telling them what God thinks. And in chapter 8, he's prophesying darkness for Israel. A dark time. And he ends chapter 8 saying, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. He's talking about the people of Israel. They will be thrust into thick darkness. Chapter 9 starts with the word but. And this, this contrast gives a hope for Israel's future. And I'm going to give you a spoiler. Our hope for our future is tied up in Israel's hope for their future. The hope that God has in store for Israel is our hope. Chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That's the two northern tribes of Israel. When invading armies would come, come across from the east or west or north, they would come down into the top of the land of Israel. Those two tribes would get hit first. So he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Galilee of the nations being that region where the border between the Jews and the Gentiles was not super stark. And there was a bit of mixing going on there. So it was Galilee of the nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. What is this light? Well, we can see in the New Testament, this passage is quoted when Jesus moves to Capernaum. Capernaum's in this region, the North Galilee region around Zebulun and Naphtali. When Jesus moves into that region, the gospel writers say, that verse was fulfilled, the light's there. He showed up in that region that Isaiah had spoken of here. On them, the light has shone. So our main text for today is going to be verses 3 through 7. <clears throat> And what we, we're going to see here is a series of causal statements. Statements where the statement in one verse and the statement in the next verse, the one of them causes the other. And these stack on top of each other all the way through. We're going to see this. You can see it in the word for. The verse four starts with the word for, verse five and verse six. And you can put in the word because when you see the word for. 
So verse 3 is the first statement that's going to be related to verse 4. It reads, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they that are glad when they divide the spoil. The joy that he's describing here, this incredible joy, um, he relates it to the joy at the harvest. If you live in an agrarian society, harvesting the food is the most joyful time. You're just holding your breath, hoping there's no grasshoppers, no hail, hoping everything comes together, and it does. You harvest all this food, and it's a time of feasting, a time of joy. You're going to make it through the next winter. You're going to be good. And that's, that's how the majority of the world lives, has lived in the past. So he compares the joy that he's talking about in verse 3 with the joy at harvest. And then second of all, he compares the joy with those who divide the spoil. Now, who are the ones that divide the spoil? They're the ones who didn't die. So if they're dividing the spoil, they survived an enemy. So there's a happiness there, a joy there, when they're dividing the spoil. <clears throat> they didn't die, and they get all the stuff. Then we get our first word, for, at the beginning of verse 4. For, the yoke of his burden, and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. Four in verse four is saying why there's this rejoicing. Okay, the rejoicing in verse three is because of what God does in verse four. So the yoke of his burden. Generally, when we think of a yoke, we think of like cattle pulling a plow or something, or maybe a horse. They'd have the yoke around their shoulders, which would pull the the um, pull the cart or whatever or plow. Um, that's not what's being spoken of here, probably. Um, back in those days, they had no wheelbarrows. So if you wanted to carry a heavy weight, you would have a stick across your shoulders and it may be curved to go around your neck and you could suspend a weight off either side. You would carry the weight that way. <coughs> Excuse me. Either water pots or dirt or whatever it is that needed to be carried. So you'd carry this burden like that. Or if you had two people and a staff, you could carry it between one person and the next. You'd suspend the the weight between the two people. Like the, the 12 spies that went to spy out Canaan and they brought back the grapes, remember? They were carrying on a staff between two guys. It was such a large, a large clump of grapes. <coughs> <coughs> so imagine carrying all that weight and then all of a sudden the yoke breaks. You straighten up and the weight comes off of you. And the staff breaks and you take a deep breath. Okay, God's going to break the yoke of his burden, break the staff of his shoulder. But then the third one, the rod of his oppressor. <coughs> the rod of his oppressor is, is used for striking, for hitting. Okay, so um, these people that are carrying these yoke and the staff, the Israelites, they're not doing it of their own accord. They're doing it because someone's there with a rod to strike them if they don't. This is, this is oppression that's being spoken of here. <clears throat> At the end of verse 4, it says, you have broken them as on the day of Midian. day of Midian is probably referring to um, Gideon and his victory over the Midianites with the, the trumpets and the clay pitchers. Remember, he breaks the pot and, and they can see all the torches. And all the Midianites run away. Just thousands of Midians, Midianites running for the hills from 300 of these Jewish guys. <clears throat> 
So the joy we see in, in verse 3 comes from the fact that the oppression has been ended in verse 4. <clears throat> That's the causal statement. Verse 4 caused verse 3 to happen. So then verse 5 is also a causal statement. Verse 5 says, For, or because, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. This rod, the staff, and the yoke <clears throat> have been broken because of a great military victory. These, this term we're seeing here in, in verse 5, it's talking about battle cleanup. After a great battle, you'll see guys all over the battlefield cleaning up the mess, burning piles of equipment and things. Every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, the boots that brought the soldiers to Israel, the boots that brought them to bring the oppression are going to be burned. The garments rolled in blood from cleaning up the battle will be burned as fuel for the fire. And that causes <coughs> the staff to be broken. The staff being broken causes the joy in verse 3. <coughs> this is the context that we see. This victory, this military victory that we see in verse 5 is the context for the very familiar Christmas passage. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. It will be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. <clears throat> I don't know how many Christmas cards that's on the front of, but they don't ever include verse 5. And they don't ever include the context, the verse right before Right before we see the child born, right before the son is given, it says every boot of the tramping warrior and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. <clears throat> and that's our last causal statement. Why will there be this military victory? Why will there be this crushing of the ones who are bringing the oppression that brings the joy? It's because the child is born, because the son is given. Do we live in a dark world? Is there oppression in our world? What is the ultimate, ultimate deliverance from that? It's this child being born. It's this son being given. These are all biblical themes that we've covered here. <clears throat> the battle that Jesus will fight when he returns to this earth is a theme. We can find it all throughout the Bible. From God promising the snake that one of the descendants of the woman that he just tricked into eating the fruit is going to come crush his head. All the way through to the book of Revelation, we have this, this battle is being talked about. The oppression that Israel is going to face before Christ comes back, the oppression that leads to their repentance, the oppression that drives them to their knees to the point where they look on him who they pierced and mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. That oppression is talked about all through the Bible. <clears throat> and this jo joy, the rejoicing, the rejoicing that comes because of their repentance, their repentance where that Christ brings about and then he comes back. Okay? 
And when he comes back, the government will be his responsibility. And all the world leaders, all the world leaders will be terrified when he comes back. Zelensky and Putin, okay, Benjamin Netanyahu, Bashar Assad, Joe Biden, Donald Trump, every one of those guys are going to bow the knee side by side if they have to when they meet our Lord, when they meet our Jesus. Because the government is going to be his responsibility. <clears throat> we get a little bit of a, a portrait of Jesus here. A portrait of Jesus, what he's going to be like when he comes back. What people are going to call him. When the government is on his shoulder, his name shall be called. Wonderful Counselor. A counselor like, like Solomon was when people had an issue or a dispute and they got to the highest court. The highest court was, was Solomon. <clears throat> and he was wise. Bring me a sword. We'll cut the baby in half. You can each have half, you know. And he exposed the true mother through his wisdom. Jesus is going to be called a wonderful counselor when he comes back. Wonderful counselor is not, not just someone off there doing something uninvolved with us. Wonderful counselor means he's going to be a part of people's lives. He's going to be involved in who we are, what we're doing. A counselor is, is involved. He has to be involved in order to be able to give you counsel, right? He's going to be the wonderful counselor. He's going to be personally involved in people's lives. The second name that we're given that he will be called when he comes back when the government is on his shoulder, he will be called Mighty God. Here we see his humanity and his divinity together. He's definitely a child born at the beginning of verse 6, a son that is given. He didn't just come down out of heaven in a body that looked like a man's body, but in reality it wasn't. You know, they could touch him and it felt like a man's body, but it wasn't. No, it wasn't. He was a real man, 100%. He was true man, okay? All of man and all of God, what we, what we just uh, read a few minutes ago. And he will be the mighty God. And both of these natures of Christ, that he's a man and that he's a God, they both exist, and we need them both. If he was half man and half God, he wouldn't be all man, and he couldn't have died for our sins. Maybe he could have died for half of our sins, but not all of them. And if he was half God, he wouldn't have been God. And it wouldn't have done us any good. He is 100% man and 100% God at the same time. And people will know him as mighty God. Contrast that with his first coming. At his first coming, people did not think he was, he was the mighty God. Um, often, even his disciples. Even up until John 16. Jesus is talking with his disciples right before he's betrayed. On the evening, he's betrayed, and he says something, and it makes a lot of sense to them. They're like, now we know you came from God. And Jesus says, all right, now it's time for you guys to be scattered to your own places. Like, you finally got it. Now you're all going to be scattered to your own, each your own way. It wasn't obvious that he was God at his first coming, even to his disciples. But at his second coming, it will be obvious. His name will be called Mighty God. That's what people will call him. 
The third one, and we're going to spend a little more time on this one. The third one is everlasting father. The everlasting father can be a little confusing since you know you're talking about Jesus. And here it calls him father. I thought God the father was the father. We have to realize that there is only one God. There is only one God. We have three persons. <clears throat> but it is still 100% of God in Christ. When Christ was on earth, there was not a third of God on earth. In him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All of God was present in Christ his entire life, not just part of God. So he is the everlasting Father, just as much as he is the Son. And when he promised the Holy Spirit would come, he says, I will send my Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit is his Spirit. Even though Christ sent it, even though he prayed to the Father, they still are one, one being. So there we see the triunity of the Godhead. <clears throat> I want to drill in a little bit into this concept of him being a Father. Him being the Father. In Exodus chapter 4, as Moses was on the way to Egypt, God came to him and told him, like, I want you to go to Pharaoh, and I want you to tell him that Israel is my son. That nation is my son. You have my son. Let my son go. He was supposed to tell Pharaoh that this body of people, God views this body of people as his son. And that, happened, that goes on throughout the... Um, the Old Testament, where Israel is seen as corporately, as a nation, they are God's son. God's son that he has adopted. But when Jesus came onto the scene, he started using a little bit different language. When he was talking with people, he would say, my father, referring to himself, instead of our father, which is what they'd have been used to. And in people's minds, they'd go, wait a second, he's our father as a nation. And Jesus would refer to him as my father, individually, specifically. What was Jesus' right to do that? How could Jesus say that about the father? How could he say he's my father? Because of the individual acceptance that Jesus had before him. Jesus was accepted by the father as, as an individual. Okay, the nation of Israel went through different stages of acceptance with the father, right? As a, as a group. <clears throat> but no one person in, in the group could ever say, God is my father. Because they didn't have 100% acceptance before God. They sinned. They had to go and sacrifice for their sins. Jesus was 100% accepted by the Father all the time. And so when his, his parents were looking for him in Jerusalem, and they finally found him, he was like, didn't you know I had to be about my father's business? He didn't say our father's business, he said my father's business, because he was, because of his person, because of who he was, he was 100% accepted by the father. And he can call him by that name, my father. <clears throat> when Jesus rose from the dead, and he met Mary Magdalene in the garden, he told her to go back, go back to my disciples, tell them I'm ascending to my father and your father my God and your God. Something changed. Something changed when he rose from the dead. Where we now have the ability to call God my Father 
individually. We have the ability to be the sons of God, personally, as individuals. <clears throat> what is that? What is that that changed? It's relating to the next name, the next name for Jesus that he's going to be called when he comes back, which is the Prince of Peace. But before we get into that, let's flip over to the New Testament and cover it a little bit. Romans chapter 5. I like to compare Romans to a schematic drawing. If you ever have a piece of equipment and you're, you need to work on it or something, and you go get out the manual. On the, front of the, on the front of the manual, you'll have like a picture of the piece of equipment all put together. But as you open the manual up, you'll see a schematic drawing where it's exploded and every little piece is, is spaced out from all of each other. And you have each little individual part explained and you get little lines drawing where they all fit together. That's, that's how I like to think of the book of Romans. You have the gospel, and on the front, in chapter 1, <clears throat> Paul describes what the gospel is. But then as you read through the book of Romans, he explodes the gospel and takes out all these little pieces. And he explains each little piece, and he shows how they all relate. It's just fascinating, fascinating book to just do a dive on. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, he's kind of concluding his point that he's been making through the end of chapter 3 and chapter 4. He says, therefore, in Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The impact, the impact of that concept, that we have peace with God, you cannot understate that. God is holy. God is holy and he's just. Since God is holy and just, you don't stand a chance. You don't stand a chance with God. He's holy and just, but he's also loving. Generally, people don't focus on those two. They generally focus on the fact that he's loving and, and all-powerful. <clears throat> and they leave out his holiness and justice. They go, if God is loving and all-powerful, you know, why is there suffering in the world? Well, it's because God's also just. And if he ended suffering, if he ended sin right now, he'd also end you. So be thankful that he is holy and that he is patient, as well as powerful and loving. So we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he continues on unpacking that. I'm tempted to cover all of chapter 5, but some of you want to eat supper, and I understand that. <clears throat> Let's skip down to verse 18. Romans 5.18, we'll unpack what's, what is this peace with God that we have. Therefore, as by one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that one trespass was the sin of, of Adam, and all men are condemned because of that one sin. All men are sinners because of that one sin. We're not just condemned because we sin in our life. We're also condemned because we're in Adam, and his one trespass led to our condemnation, which we still are condemned for our sin as well. Therefore, just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. In the same way that Adam's sin, way back then, condemns you now, in the same way, one action, one thing that one person did 
not as long ago, leads to justification and life for all men. And this word justification, we generally tend to use a more restricted definition for that word, that God declares us righteous. Um, but remember, the word is, is just a word, and it has its own dictionary definition to justify something, to justify your, your checkbook, to make the one thing equal the other. Or if someone says something that's out of line, you could say that wasn't justified, meaning what you said does not equal the situation. You shouldn't have said that. So just like one man's disobedience thousands of years ago led to our condemnation, so one man's righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Leads to equalness. Justification. Equalness. Verse 19. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Verse 20. Now the law came to increase the trespass. The law came to increase the trespass. The more you focus on what God wants of you, the more you focus on morality, the more you focus on trying harder, the more you'll fail. That's the nature of our flesh. That's the nature of our sin. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. <clears throat> where sin was too much, Grace was more too much. It's one of those things where language kind of fails to fails to accurately present it unless you say something that sounds kind of awkward. In the Greek it was it's where where sin was too much, grace was much more too much. That's what it is in the Greek. How else can you say it? Right? Where our sin was too much, the work of Christ, the grace that is given to us, was more. Verse 21, he's going to make a comparison now. So that as sin reigned in death, in the same way that sin reigned and produced death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So how then do we obtain this peace with God? It's not, it's not something that we need to work on and conjure up, is it? Sometimes you may not feel it. You may not feel at peace with God when you're sinning, right? And that you shouldn't, because you've turned your back on him in your sin. But God has, God has his son. He has the payment for your sin. And so he's ready to continue fellowship with you as soon as you're ready. He's not holding a grudge over you for your sin. He's not sitting there waiting until you say how sorry you are over and over again. Your sin's already paid for. God has the payment in hand. So as you break fellowship with God and as you sin, know that peace with God still exists. Peace with God still exists because your peace with God is based on the work that Jesus did. And it's not based on something you did. So you have a peace with God every day. 
every day, all day long. Your peace with God exists. Live like that. Live like that. So you can call him Father. Call him Father like Christ called him Father. Let's head back over to Isaiah chapter 9. We'll keep going. So we'll start back at the beginning of verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Is he your Prince of Peace? Has he accomplished that for you? Are you at peace with God because of him? And are you ready for him to bring peace to the earth? Because he's coming. And when he's coming, he's bringing judgment. Are you ready for the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace to show up here and bring peace to the earth? Our world needs that on every level. Our world needs the Prince of Peace. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. We touched on this in Sunday school, if you were here in Sunday school. Um, I'm going to jump over to to the book of James real quick. You don't have to follow me there. Um, We just touched on this at the end of, of the book of James. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. We just covered these in Sunday school being patient about it until he receives the early and latter rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts in that. Establish your hearts in the fact that he's coming back, and of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. How's this going to happen? How's this going to happen that he's going to be able to bring peace when he comes? I'm going to go over to Luke chapter 1. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid. I love Gabriel. He's so nice. He's always showing up and helping people out. I'm like, hey, don't be scared, all right? God's got a plan for you, for me and the devil, all right? <laughs> Customer service reps should study Gabriel, huh? He's <clears throat> always so helpful. All right, so he says, um, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. He says, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, and of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is an important message. I can't imagine how excited Gabriel must have been to be able to carry this message. 
And this is a theme that Mary would have been familiar with. It's a theme that, that people understood um, from the Old Testament, um, from 2 Samuel 7. I'm going to jump back there. In 2 Samuel 7, David is a little excited about, about starting work on a project. He's been you know, successful as a king, and he's built himself a house, and the Ark of the Covenant's still in a tent. And he kind of thinks that's not that great, and he wants to you know, build an actual structure for the Ark of God to be in. The presence of God can be in a, in a framed house. And God tells David, no, no, not you. Okay, but then God gives him a promise. <coughs> in 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, he gives him a promise and he says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. These are the words that, that God told Nathan to go tell David. God made this promise to David that he was going to have a descendant that would have a throne that would be established forever. Now, for us as Americans, it's a little hard to appreciate that because we have the Constitution. We have the government by the people and for the people. And that's great. That's really great. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for the peace that we have enjoyed because of that. But it's difficult for us to appreciate monarchy. We forget that for most of, most of the history of the world, might makes right. And people say that, right? Might makes right. Whoever's the strongest is the one who's right. That's not true. Mostly when people say that, they're saying it's not true. But that's the norm. That's what we have seen in the history of our world. And we're very blessed not to have that here in our country. But this promise that God made to David that he would have a son who was going to sit on his throne forever, and that David's house would be the ruling dynasty forever, that's a big deal. It's a big deal for our world. Not just for David, not just for Israel, but, but for our world. So when Gabriel tells Mary that the Lord God is going to give your son the throne of his father, David, in her mind, like, that's significant. It's very significant. As they're living under, <clears throat> under the rule of the Romans. So of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. This is Isaiah 9, 7 again. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. <clears throat> the zeal of Jehovah of hosts will do this. And at the end there, Isaiah cites What's going to accomplish this? What's going to accomplish this thing that brings a king to the earth that can rule with justice and righteousness, who can uphold the throne of Israel on the whole earth? It's the zeal. Our Bibles say the Lord of hosts, but Lord is in all caps there, which means it's the personal name of God. Um, when God brought Israel out of Egypt, he gave a personal name that he wanted to be called by. And during the Babylonian captivity, uh, they, linguistically, things kind of changed, and we lost the uh, ability to know how that name was specifically pronounced. So in our English Bibles, we just put capital L-O-R-D. 
But this is the personal name of God the Father. His zeal is going to be what accomplishes this, this hope for the future of the world. So as we go through the next week, we finish out this year, as we go through next year, as we see dark things in our world, we see painful things in our world, understand that God has a true light, a true light that he has made, that he has sent into the world. When he came the first time, he did what he came to accomplish. And we can be sure when he comes the second time, it'll be the same way. That's a peace. That's a hope. That's a light. That's a true light. Don't drown out the darkness of this world with artificial light, easy things. Drown out the darkness of this world with the hope that God gives you that his son will be effective, that his son is coming soon, and his son has the power to make things right. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time and your word. Please help us to have your perspective on these things, God. Please help us to take seriously the condition this world is in, Help us to take seriously the fact that you are going to fix it. Help us to live in light of the truth that you have redeemed us, that you have peace with us, so that we can walk with you as you bring about this peace, this joy. We thank you for that, God. In Jesus' name, amen.